it's really a multi-pronged deficit. So the GI tract in general has, if that's not right, it has a lot of downstream effects. So I always say that if you can't figure out what to do for the child, start with the gut. And that will often be very rewarding. Want to truly be the best parent you can be and help your child thrive after their autism diagnosis? This podcast is for all in parents like you who know more is possible for your child. With each episode, we reveal a secret that empowers you to be the parent your child needs now, saving you time, energy, and money, and helping you focus on what truly matters most, your child. I'm Cass. And I'm Len. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. It's Len. I'm here with Cass, and we have a very special guest today, Dr. Liz Mumper. She is a board-certified pediatrician with decades of service supporting children on the spectrum and their families. She's currently on the faculty of MAPS, the Medical Academy for Pediatric Special Needs, and is certified by the Institute of Functional Medicine where she developed the first advanced clinical training in pediatrics for the organization. Dr. Mumper attended the Medical College of Virginia, did residency training at the University of Massachusetts and University of Virginia, and she served as the chief resident of pediatrics at UVA. She's the former medical director at the Autism Research Institute and president, CEO, and medical director at the Rimland Center in Lynchburg, Virginia. When I attended my first autism conference in 2008, Dr. Mumper was the very first speaker that I witnessed. And during that presentation, she shared one key strategy that changed everything for us. And it's more relevant now than ever, yet it's not as widely understood as it could be. The secret this week is the gut-brain connection really matters. Welcome, Dr. Mumper. Thank you. And Lynn, thank you for sharing that that lecture made a difference for you. That was awesome. Huge. Cass sent me on a flight to San Diego. I showed up. That was the first thing. And it really profoundly changed everything for us. Yeah, we had just our daughter was born, what, three weeks before. And so and our son was just diagnosed with moderate to severe autism. So Len went out there, one of the only dads, you know, this was back when it was defeat autism now. Um, But yeah, it truly changed our trajectory. I mean, we went serious. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And, And so now it's so many years later. And I would love to say that that's something that you you were talking about way back then. And that now that's so much more widely understood, but it really isn't. Is that your view as well? Yeah. You know, at Defeat Autism Now, we actually first started talking about it in 1995. And it's only been in the last few years that the concept has really seemed to permeate into the standard uh, medical literature. And once that started happening, there's been an explosion. So you'll see huge amounts of information about the microbiome. And um, in 2010, there were some pediatric guidelines for taking care of kids with autism that included the issue that you really needed to look into their gastrointestinal problems. And, you know, you could no longer legitimately say, oh, he has chronic diarrhea, that's just part of the autism. Or, oh, 
He only has a bowel movement every four or five days. Constipation is just common in kids with autism. The onus then is on the clinician to actually work up the problem and try to help the child. So that's been a welcome uh, change, but um, we certainly haven't permeated uh, every family in America with this news. So I'm glad we're here to uh, take it a little further with the uh, podcast today. Yeah, and that is such an important issue. And I know when our son regressed, like the stomach, the GI issues that he had, it was, you know, he ended up, you know, stopped growing, but then also was pooping up to 10 times a day. And it was just, and you take him to doctors and they're like, oh, wait, you know, they would start looking at him as a patient. But once that they saw or heard that he was also diagnosed with autism, it was like, oh, well, that's your answer. And I was like, okay, what if it's the opposite? What if we help him feel better in his body? What if we heal his gut? what might that impact be on his autism, which was truly game-changing, right? If you can get them feeling good in their body, uh, so much more, and assimilating nutrients, so much more as possible. Well, one of the things we've discovered over the years is, number one, a significant proportion of kids with autism actually have inflammation in their gut. So think about if you had to go you know, get your college degree when you had a stomachache every single hour of every single day of your life, practically, you know, it's distracting and you cannot pay attention as well. The other thing we found out is that children on the spectrum often do not process their nutrients very well. So they're not getting the building blocks that they need in order to make their neurotransmitters, which help them pay attention, focus and do well in school. And the other thing is about two-thirds of the kids with autism don't have enough digestive enzymes to even digest their food. And so they're eating, or sometimes they're very picky and they don't eat very well at all, but the food that they get doesn't get transformed into the constituent proteins and fats and ingredients that they need in order to uh, build their body. So it's really a multi-pronged deficit. So, you know, the GI tract in general has, if that's not right, it has a lot of downstream effects. So I always say that if you can't figure out what to do for the child, start with the gut. And that will often be very rewarding. And I, and I love that you're giving a deeper explanation on the why this matters. Because so often I think parents hear about a special diet, gluten-free, something like that. They'll they'll quote unquote, try it for about a week or so and, and proclaim it doesn't work. Uh, but I think that in-depth understanding of why food matters, forget about the type of diet, but what it, why it's so critical for every child, but particularly kids on the spectrum. And with that deeper understanding, I think parents then would have more of a capability of making changes consistently that have the possibility of then really benefiting their child. I think you're right, Lynn. And one thing I'd like to point out is that um, sometimes people get very hung up on a special kind of diet. Um, and you've mentioned one of the most popular, gluten-free, casein-free. At the first visit, I'm actually thrilled if I can get parents to just clean up the diet and uh, start eating whole foods and anti-inflammatory foods and giving up processed foods, which often have preservatives in them that the child can't necessarily break down, often has emulsifiers that have 
um, bad effects on the child's health often have dyes in them that some kids just simply can't process. Some kids with autism have a major deficit in what's called the phenyl sulfur transferase pathway. And that is a pathway that helps you break down things like acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, and certain types of um, preservatives and certain types of dyes and salicylates. And so if a child can't break those down and they're continuing to eat them, that can really be bad news for them. Now, beyond some of the things that I mentioned before, there are other reasons that parents might want to consider trying the gluten-free, casein-free diet. And you're exactly right, Lynn. A week is not enough. Taking away dairy, you actually often, if you go cold turkey off dairy, you'll frequently notice an improvement in your child's behavior within the first three to five to seven days. Um, one of the reasons for that is that some kids don't make enough of the digestive enzyme called DPP4, which is um, dipeptidyl peptidase 4, and that is very important to break down both casein and gluten. And if you don't break casein down all the way, you end up with what's called caseomorphin. And just like the name suggests, it has some characteristics that are morphine-like. And so kids sometimes literally seem to get drunk or sleepy or foggy after they have milk. And so we're trying to get them to do ABA or learn in speech therapy. And it's like, uh, you know, somebody gave them a hit of morphine. With gluten, you also need DPP-4. And for some kids with gluten, um, that will give them brain fog. So the problem with gluten, though, is you really have to take it out for a long time before your body really gets rid of it immunologically. The great Norwegian researchers uh, like Dr. Reicheld um, proved that there were these metabolites in the child's urine and they would often persist uh, for three to six months, sometimes even up to a year in those Norwegian studies. So you can't do a gluten-free diet the way some people like to do a calorie restriction diet, which is, oh, I'll count my calories all week and then I'll have a cheat day on Sunday because every cheat day um, leads you back to stage one again. And even your immune system is so smart that even a couple of molecules of gluten or casein will be detected by your immune system. And so it's not like a diet where you can kind of do it 80% of the time or 80% of the foods. If you're going to commit to it, you know, I, I really want you to, to just go um, really, really strict. And I know it's hard, but there are a lot more gluten-free and casein-free foods now than they were when we started telling people about this in the early 2000s. And the thing is, if you do it strictly, you have a good chance of really getting rewarded with a better behavioral or learning trajectory in your child. And then for most parents, that makes it worth the extra trouble. Yeah, and the what you explained about the casein morphines and kind of the breakdown and almost like a drug effect, that was our child. He needed two drinkable organic yogurts back to back, and then he was in like a drunken stupor. It was like truly a fix for him. Ended up he had a dairy allergy. But the other thing too with parent, and I love what you said is because, yeah, getting rid of casein, getting rid of, and if you choose casein-free or dairy-free, right? Um, 
you do see results fast. And so that's where I think also for parents, hey, if you want to start somewhere and you want to, you know, low hanging fruit, giving up that dairy and just kind of check the marked improvements. Because yes, you might see behavior changes, digestion changes. I know for some kids, even asthma improves, you know, with dairy is a big culprit there as well. Um, So kind of little small changes and knowing like, okay, I've done that. I've seen success. Now I'm feeling a bit more prepared to maybe um, take out gluten, which is a longer proposition. I love that you said, you know, because I, I, when I meet parents, a lot of times, well, I'm mostly gluten-free. It's like either do or don't, you can't be both. Right. Yep. And well, you, you, I, I, and I guess my take on that is you, you can be, it's just then the benefits are going to be very different. So in other words, if you want to stop this chain reaction, this, this cycle that's going on, that could translate into huge potential benefits for your child, then yeah, then commit and do it. But for a parent who's like, okay, we're going to eat less gluten or maybe, you know, have it on the weekends, like the cheat day that you mentioned, Dr. Mumper. Yeah, you can do that. And net net, is that a positive thing? If you're feeding less of something that's inflammatory? Yeah, it might be positive, but like these are kind of minor compared to like the true benefits that you're going after, which basically get to, trying to get to the root of what's going on. That's where this root cause focus, if a parent can shift and really looking at that and looking more at the long game instead of short-term tactical wins, that's where so much more opens up in terms of real significant possibilities. I completely agree. And if parents are unsure if taking gluten or casein away really made a difference, sometimes to convince them after they've you know, presuming that we convince them to go strictly off, sometimes we'll let them have a pig out on milk day and we'll say, give them, you know, a glass of milk at breakfast, um, yogurt at lunch and ice cream with dinner and, you know, see if they either get foggy or some kids uh, will get actually kind of hyperactive and behaviorally um, challenged when they have that kind of a diet. And so, um that's one way that we try to get people to buy into being strict if they can see what happens when they aren't. Yeah, like anything else, if you see the consequences, that that's the best way to learn. Right. And you also and you also said something about like the emulsifiers. I remember once buying like a gluten-free rice cereal, only had three ingredients. And like I watched and we were super clean at that point, gluten dairy free for a few years. And I remember my son eating what I thought was a clean cereal, but within he took two, you know, three little bites of it. And honestly, it was a different kid within the matter of minutes. And I, one of, I think a feeding therapist or someone was with me and she was like, did you just witness that? And so this is where some kids, guess what? Little changes might make huge difference. Other kids, you're going to be like, oh my God, I have such a sensitive kid. But as much as you can observe and witness and kind of pivot, that's where, you know, the power comes in really supporting each child as they need to be supported based on, you know, what, how they respond to things. That's an excellent example of the gut affecting the brain, which is then affecting behavior. And, you know, grownups should be able to relate to this because everybody's, you know, seen a drunk uncle at a wedding that, you know, either became overly friendly uh, with all the women at the wedding or really became a jerk and started being aggressive. And so clearly food and drink does affect our behavior for sure. 
But another thing I wanted to mention is that for some kids, even so-called good whole foods might be a trigger for them. Like, for example, uh, tomatoes and potatoes um, are things that aren't included in the so-called anti-inflammatory diet because for some kids, they do cause inflammation. So another good way uh, for parents to go, if you don't want to go gluten-free, dairy-free right off the bat, is to go anti-inflammatory because we do have lots of evidence that many kids on the spectrum have chronic inflammation that's either in their gut or in their brain or in both. And um, this is one of the ways that we postulate that Tom Brady got to be a quarterback for so many decades because he eats a very strict anti-inflammatory diet. And so when he gets knocked down, you know, week after week from all the people that want to uh, tackle him, um, he is able to recover much more quickly because he has very low loving, levels of inflammation in his body to start. So if I've got some kid who's a footballer or sports fan, um, talking about Tom Brady's anti-inflammatory diet helps. You can see I'm looking for any kind of hook to either get the parent or the patient to really focus on nutrition. Yeah. Yep. And, and those arguments are going to be needed because you're combating what may perhaps the single biggest thing that parents are afraid of, including myself, inconvenience, right? I have to, I have to make more effort here to feed my family. Things are already so tough. It's just amazing how food you would think making some changes wouldn't be that big of a deal, but the inconvenience of it is really, I think as years go by, it gets more and more difficult for people to do inconvenient things. But Cass and I have learned that those measures that are inconvenient made all the difference for our son. And you may remember one of my mentors is Sydney Baker, who, um, taught us so much about the gut and the role of yeast infections. And he says it's easier to get people to change their religion than it is to change their diet. And so we understand that this is really hard for families. And that's why I employed a full-time nutritionist in my practice so that she could be there to support them. And we always tell people at the end of the visit where we suggest changing a diet, if you're having trouble, please call us, reach out to us because this isn't our first rodeo, and Susan will be able to help you troubleshoot the areas you're having uh, difficulty with. Um, I do want to give a shout out to those in the audience who might have a very picky eater. Um, frequently, when we do our intakes, we find that the child only eats five foods. One of them is usually chicken nuggets and often from only a particular fast food place. The second is usually French fries. And again, it has, might have to be McDonald's and it might have to be Wendy's. Um, and then mac and cheese is usually in there. And then a smattering of other foods. Um, a child that eats those foods is not getting enough zinc. Zinc is found in nuts and seeds. And it's also found in things like clams and oysters. And, you know, how many self-respecting toddlers are eating clams and oysters? Not very many. So uh, a zinc deficiency, one of the main things that happens with that is that you lose your sense of smell and it adversely affects your sense of taste. And so one of the things we'll do for the parents of these picky eaters is put the child on small amounts of zinc. You do have to start low and go slow because too much at one time can cause some nausea or upset stomach. So for a toddler, say, we might just start with five milligrams twice a day and then work up to 10 milligrams twice a day. For some of the older kids, we might get them up to 25 milligrams twice a day. 
And over time, we see them start to broaden out their appetite, which can be very helpful. And then the other thing that we're doing, uh, we like to give one of the doses at night because zinc is very important in your detoxification capability. It uh, complexes with something called metallothionine to escort various toxins out of the body. And if you're deficient in zinc, your detox is going to suffer. We know now that when you sleep, your brain actually shrinks a little bit so that your brain can kind of go through this washing by the cerebrospinal fluid overnight, which helps you get rid of the toxins that we all uh, accumulate during the day, no matter how careful we are, because we do live in a polluted world. So uh, zinc I love for those two reasons, the picky eaters and the detoxification capability. First of all, I mean, thank you for that. Because can I, I, I had a son who could not smell until he was 10 years old, wow. who's, also, who's also allergic to all nuts, all seeds and shellfish. So you're just like, which I'm like, okay, Len, we now need to go back and think about, you know, zinc, but no, it's the, there's so many of these little clues, right? Yeah. That what might be that right support to really help your child where they are and what they might need. Um, so I think that zinc is a really um, interesting thing that probably is often overlooked. Um, and I also like to go slow because I know so many parents who will come back from a doctor's appointment, you know, with the 10 new supplements and start everything at once. But when you have a really sensitive child, it's like, go slow, one at a time, maybe not at that dosage that was recommended, build up gradually because, you, you know, this is where you know, sometimes it's best guest work and it's like, okay, you know your child. And so what is that ability to get them where they need to be? But it's not a race. It's all about supporting them as they need to be supported. And I don't want everybody starting 10 things at once because then if the child goes south, I have no idea what I did to him that made him, you know, have a bad reaction. And that brings up an important point. You're talking about clues. We always tell people, if we do, if we recommend something that makes your child worse, please tell us, you know, it's not going to hurt our feelings. I mean, because that is a clue to us about where the pathology might be. And there are so many medical problems that can potentially be in play with any particular child with autism that we're making our best judgments, but we're certainly not infallible. So a bad reaction to something actually gives us clues for where we need to go next or redirect the therapy. But yes, don't start everything at once. Do one thing at a time. There are a few things like vitamin D. You can start vitamin D one day. Most kids are going to do great with it. So three or four days later, move on to the next thing. But for example, if you're doing a big antifungal uh, parade or intervention, you know, the child might actually, after three to four days, seem worse to you because you're succeeding. You're actually killing the yeast. The yeast do not like that. So talk about a gut-brain connection. So these little yeast in the gut are sending your brain messages that say, you feel like you have the flu, your stomach hurts, you know. And um, to, to the parent and the child, it's hard to live through. But for us, we know that that means we're probably on the right track and should support them give them some measures to cope, like, for example, being able to do activated charcoal or to alkalinize the child through uh, the use of sodium bicarbonate, for example. But you want to support them through that dial. 
and maybe decrease the dose of the antifungal a little bit so that it's not so severe, but then maybe go even a little longer to make sure that you really get rid of it all. So I want to emphasize um, treating children with autism is not a cookbook at all. It's like a huge chess game where you make a strategy and you make a move, and then the child makes a move either to get better, which reinforces going in that direction, or to get worse, which gives you a clue of how you need to redirect. But I would steer away from um, parents being uh, so disappointed if they hear, for example, that your child got so much better with gluten-free, casein-free, and then they try that and they do it right. And that isn't the ticket for that child. Um, that just means that we haven't found the key to unlock the problem for that particular child. It's clearly very individualized medicine that is constantly changing depending on the child's response. That's very uh, well stated in terms of what this looks like in practice, but you're talking about a parent going down a road, you know, with a practitioner who's got a certain worldview and a certain uh, and strategies that they can recommend. So this might be a perfect example to do a little bit of 101 from a practitioner perspective. You have conventional medicine pediatricians, pediatricians who are out there in a more conventional model, and they have certain strategies and playbook which would be very different than functional medicine, which I mentioned in the intro in terms of what you're um, well uh, well steeped in. And so you could you talk a little bit about just how practitioners have different philosophies and playbooks and then focusing on MAPS, which is even more specific in terms of practitioners who really focus on kids and with this more, let's just say, root cause approach. So I'd love for you just to paint that picture for parents as they're trying to decide who's the right practitioner, who would be a fit for them? Well, you may need both, actually, because um, there aren't that many uh, people like me that do the kind of work I do. And you may still need a pediatrician if your child gets a strep throat on a weekend or, you know, for routine well child care. So my in my ideal world, it would be a collaboration. But many physicians, most physicians, me, um, we were trained to look at what's called a differential diagnosis. That means you, you know, look at the kid's symptoms and then you try to make a diagnosis. Well, the last time I gave a kid with autism, just one diagnosis. I mean, it's never happened. You know, there are almost always other things that are uh, contributing to it or underlying or, as you say, associated with root causes. So the model is to make a diagnosis and then pick the right medicine for that diagnosis. And so when someone is only traditionally trained, they're going to have the traditional prescription medicine and perhaps the use of some over-the-counter medicine, um, but they're not going to do nutraceutical biochemistry, which is the really fun part of this, where you figure out the nutrient deficiencies and the child's symptoms and try to figure out how you can give them the building blocks to make the stuff they need themselves. We historically in the United States have vastly overused antibiotics, and it's because uh, pharmaceutical companies give a lot of money to medical education now, and they have sadly driven the agenda. And um, there have been studies that show that silly things like, you know, um, a pharma rep giving a doctor a pen that says amoxicillin on it 
means that the doctor is subconsciously going to write for more amoxicillin because they've been given a gift and, you know, you want to reciprocate on some, you know, underlying unconscious level. So unfortunately, the overuse of antibiotics is one of the things that we perceive has contributed to the autism pandemic because um, overusing antibiotics tends to deplete the good gut flora that do a lot of things for us, like helping with peristalsis, which is that squeezing movement to get the stool to go through the gut. And um, when that when you um, lose peristalsis, the child gets constipated. And constipation is one of the very, very common things that we see in our kids with autism. The other thing that can happen when you dysregulate your gut flora is that you don't make all your vitamins because uh, gut flora have a role in helping us make vitamins. So that's when we find out that kids have vitamin deficiencies. The other thing that can happen when you use a lot of antibiotics is that um, the yeast tend to take over the gut as the good gut flora are killed by the antibiotics. And then kids get yeast infections, which may present with this maniacal laughter in the middle of the night. It might present with hyperactivity. We might get lucky and see actual signs of red cheeks and red ears and flaky skin findings that make us think of yeast. But these yeast are crafty creatures and they cause like a little fermentation factory in your gut. And the kids sometimes actually, uh, again, act kind of drunk when they've got big yeast infections. So a combination of avoiding yeast-producing foods, which is anything that is a simple sugar or a simple carbohydrate, um, and um, paying attention to uh, competing with those yeasts and um, taking them away with antifungals or certain herbals can be very helpful. Um, again, with the caveat that when you kill yeast, they don't like it, and the kid might go through a period of a Herxheimer reaction where they might feel like they have the flu, or you might even cause some diarrhea with white stuff coming out that is a reflection of the fungus that was in the gut. So um, I, I would hope as time goes on that people don't use antibiotics as much as they do now, um, antibiotics don't cure viral infections, and most illness in a child is viral and not initially bacterial. So um, part of it is parent expectations because some parents don't feel like they've really gotten their money's worth out of a doctor visit unless they live with the antibiotic. Uh, they leave with the antibiotic prescription, and it's not as satisfying sometimes to hear somebody like me say, "Well, it's a virus." you know, do vitamin D, do vitamin C, you know, try to feed your kid really healthy, throw in some bone broth. Um, but I think that's the best way to treat viruses. So uh, I stick with that. And enough people like it that uh, they come back or the ones that don't like it go somewhere else where they can get what they um, expect. So if parents are working with, let's say, a MAPS doctor or a even functional medicine doctor, and they hear you talk about kind of the, sometimes you'll see more behaviors. Because I think some parents get really scared when they see their child either have a fever or possibly vomit or increased behaviors. Um, Len and I have lived these things and we always 
And as we went through it, I mean, when it first started, you're kind of scared. And then at the end, we were like, bring on the fevers. Because usually with the fevers, we had the most incredible breakthroughs um, that we had ever seen. But I think part of this partnership that you can have with your doctor is, especially when you start something new, hey, what might I see? Like, what are some of the things I could see? So it's almost just preparing yourself for, hey, you might see X, Y, and Z, and maybe you're going to need activated charcoal or, you know, just kind of making sure that parent feels a little bit more empowered and knowing that this could be normal. And of course, you stay in close communication with your doctor. You know, I always say like the rainbows come after storms. Um, And I kind of use that analogy too for, you know, what we witnessed with our son. Well, it's an excellent point. Um, I've probably have scared some parents away because I tend to err on the side of over-describing what could happen because I think that the the known, no matter how bad it can be, is actually easier to cope with than the unknown. And I hate the thought of, oh, I forgot to tell them about die-off or Herx reactions. So they're at home convinced that their child has some horrible illness when it is going to pass. So um, the the point is that with MAPS, which I realized I forgot to talk about in, in detail, um, at MAPS, we're constantly looking at underlying causes of behavior, and we're looking at underlying medical issues that might lead to behavioral changes. So there are five main categories we tend to look at. One is the gut, which we're covering today. Another one is immune dysregulation. And the story you told about the fever, that's absolutely true. I have had many kids uh, who, when they have a fever, 104, 105 on the way to the ER, they're the most talkative they've ever been. And it's amazing. And that's a clue to me that there's something about the cytokines, which are the chemical messengers of inflammation, and something about the immune system in this kid that we need to balance or work on. A third area we work on is metabolic. Um, that's where things um, that you're that your listeners may have heard about um, MB12 shots or doing folate. Um, That's all to help balance the metabolism on a cellular level so that it can do the work it needs to do. We also emphasize detoxification, which we've referred to briefly, trying to both limit the child's exposure to toxins and then help them get rid of whatever toxins they've already been exposed to. And then another very important area is the role of the mitochondria. Mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. And um, many kids with autism have problems with their mitochondria because as important as they are, those little devils are so sensitive. They're, you know, the cell's a little bit too salty or not salty enough and they quit working. (laughs) You know, um, they get a virus and that dampens down mitochondria. A bunch of medicines, most notably statins, are bad for the mitochondria. Heavy metals, you know, mercury, lead, aluminum, all those things uh, are not good for um, mitochondria. And then various toxins um, like pesticides. So there's so many things in the world we've created now. It's something like 86,000 new to nature chemicals that our mitochondria, quite frankly, don't know what to do with. So your MAPS doctors We'll be learning, uh, and one of the times will be in March coming up the 16th through the 18th, I believe, in Charlotte. Um, we will be covering all those things, plus a lot of case-based teaching where we go through patients that we've had and lessons that we've learned from them to try to help the 
more inexperienced practitioners get um, that kind of experience. And then there's a special emphasis on Lyme disease and co-infections this year in which um, we're going to do a deep dive into how that can complicate everything. <laughs> and so um, it, it, to, to not just try to pick a diagnosis that you, you can then pick a medicine for versus constantly being curious, constantly asking why, constantly trying to figure out what is the cause of the cause of the cause and getting down to the root problems and then ideally fixing those with things like diet and lifestyle changes. Um, lifestyle like sleep. If I can fix sleep for families, you know, they are thrilled because as you probably know, a kid with autism often have sleep problems, which means the parents aren't sleeping. And after a certain amount of chronic sleep deprivation, you know, sleep causes you to be kind of psychotic. It's why they use it for, use sleep deprivation for torture. So that's a big lifestyle thing in addition to diet. So I have a lot of hope about if we really could get a system of medicine in America that would support individualized care. And unfortunately, what I've seen in the last three years is this, you know, movement back toward protocols and regimens and, you know, what you can get at the hospital and, you know, what your doctor at the hospital can't order for you, even though he or she has a great reason for doing so. You know, I hope that is going to die very quickly because we have to move toward individual care focused on an individual patient. Um, what's good for the goose is not, you know, necessarily good for the gander. And um, I, I just really hope we can rekindle that intellectual enthusiasm in medicine to always be kind of being a medical detective and not just somebody who follows a protocol. Well, th thank you very much for that expansive. Uh, description of that landscape. And, and I love the having the two-pronged approach, right? Maybe having a, a more conventional doctor, local for things as they come up, but then having more of this root cause expert, whether it's a MAPS doctor or a functional medicine doctor. I guess the only thing I would throw out there is a lot of conventional doctors don't really aren't buyers of any other model. And so you, you probably want to have somebody who at least is open-minded, perhaps instead of a strict conventional doctor, maybe someone with a more an integrative approach. Um, you know, we run into that a lot with, with um, parents that we coach, where sometimes they have different practitioners they're working with, but they, you know, they say they can't share everything with all of them. Like they can't be an open book. Like, I, well, I can't tell this person that I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And that just adds more stress. So, you know, to have a few practitioners to have people who will play nice together and, and in the spirit of cooperation for what's best for the child, you know, you can find those people they're out there and it, it may be someone with a more expansive approach. And that's where it's, you know, like we did, right. We found a quarterback who was our primary pediatrician, but then, you know, he was even part of, Hey, I just read about this. What do you know? Who's the people I need to talk to? And it was much more collaborative because I think as much as we can collaborate as, as we support our individual children and, you know, adults. Uh, I'm glad you had that person. Uh, that's what I would hope that um, everyone could find. With a little bit of work. I mean, you may, you may have to do a little bit of work. Maybe it's not the person who's a block away, but, uh, but, you know, and, and we, we were living in New York City at the time and we drove like over an hour to find this person, uh, you know, so, um, so yeah, they're out there. It's just, again, it, make sure you're surrounding yourself with 
the right support. And from a medical um, uh, doctor perspective, yes, someone who's curious, who's open-minded, um, and you know they're out there. But you might have to go through a few. We 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 hired and fired a number of people before we found that right team. And um, and again, for us, having a more root cause approach, a more functional or now what would be considered a MAPS doctor was a key part of, of what ultimately helped us find answers for our son. Now, now, you mentioned the MAPS conference that is coming up. We'll be there as well. That's not so much a conference for parents as much as it is for those other pediatricians that are out there, right, who are curious, who want to better understand what more they can do for these patients that they truly care about. That's true, Lynn. But, you know, a lot of doctors who are in this business are in it because they had a child, you know, with autism rates now being one in 30 in this country, which is just horrifying to me. That means that a lot of doctors and nurse practitioners and physical therapists and chiropractors have children on the spectrum. And so you're right. It is a clinician conference and not for parents. But many of those clinicians are going to also be parents of, of children that they're trying to help too. That's right. And we plan on interviewing a lot of them while we're there to be able to share with parents. And, and I love that you, I know part of what you're going to be doing there is sharing with them prevention strategies, right? And so I think that's powerful to, again, go as far back as you can to prevent uh, from happening what's happening to so many kids and families and so as you're thinking about that, is there anything specific for our audience that you would say, yes, there's a lot of areas that you can play defense and prevent? Is there anything that jumps to mind that's just a big gorilla to, to make sure you're at least aware of and doing, doing something? Yeah, well, I started a long-term research project in my general pediatrics practice. I have two practices. One takes care of the special needs children, um, and the other is you know, your sort of typical general peds practice. And in that, kids that are born into my general peds practice have a one in 297 chance of getting autism. And that's better than the national current record of one in 30 chance. And honestly, the parents of children with autism taught me to do all the things I do in that practice. Um, we emphasize things like if the child is born by C-section or has to be in the NICU and get antibiotics early on. We do probiotics very early, sometimes at even two weeks of age. We emphasize the importance of vitamin D in the mother and in the child. We look at um, trying not to prescribe antibiotics for kids who have viral infections. And so our use of things like amoxicillin and Zithromax um, is much lower than is typical in a regular practice. And um, I have a full-time nutritionist. So from the get-go, we're trying to not get our babies to get hooked on sweet foods first. We start avocado first and then make them go through three or four savory vegetables before they get the sweet taste of fruit, which they're going to prefer. And then uh, we use a modified vaccine schedule. I am a doctor that thinks for some kids, not every kid with autism, but for some kids, vaccines do seem to be a trigger. There are several reasons for this. Any vaccine is a, 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 at least a short-term stressor on the immune system, and all vaccines are stressors on the mitochondria. So what we tried to do is in patients that wanted vaccines to not do more than one or two at a time, 
that also limited the amount of aluminum we exposed the babies to because as mercury was phased out of vaccines, uh, aluminum is still in there, and that's also uh, a known neurotoxin. And I can do a 20-minute long exam on your newborn, and I know nothing about what their detoxification pathways in their liver are. You know, those are biochemical pathways that I can't pick up on physical exams. So I can't look at one child and say, wow, you know, you can't handle a lot of aluminum and another child and say, oh, you're good to detox anything. So I, you know, try to come back to the simple strategy of first do no harm. And so um, with our modified schedule, I do think that that is a factor in our better statistics in terms of autism risk. So your readers can, or your listeners can actually read about it. Uh, I wrote about it back in 2012 and 2013. So if you Google my name and PubMed or Google Scholar, you can read some of those things that I enumerated that we've been trying. And we're 17 years into the project now. And uh, so I I think that we've got... um, you know, some some good real world practice based data that not only autism, but also things like allergies and um, asthma and other developmental delays are less common when you do those things in in your practice. So I'll leave it there because I don't want to overstate it. Um, you know, practice based research gets a lot of criticism and I've certainly had my fair share. But the reality is kids don't live in double-blind placebo-controlled trials. They go to a pediatrician or a family doc that's going to do a number of strategies and practice uh, medicine a certain way. And so I think that there's value to include that clinical aspect of what happens in the real world when we're trying to make decisions about what's best for our children. People are very quick to dismiss, oh, that can't be what happened to your child versus like, well, yes, it could be. And here, let's kind of go through it together. So I think, you know, the information that you have, you know, the 17 years of information can be extremely valuable. And your stat of what, one in 297 is much better than where we are as a society. So thank you for really nurturing your patients in the way that seems to be really supporting them to be their best selves. Well, it's been a very rewarding career. Uh, I have to say, sadly, um, I I still am taking care of my autism patients and my complex chronic illness patients, but I had trouble finding other uh, clinicians that wanted to work the way I do. Um, It's not very profitable, honestly, because it takes more time and you hire more staff. And a lot of young doctors are coming out with a couple hundred thousand dollars in, you know, medical school debt. So it's certainly not for everybody. Um, but I, I, I got to 17 years on that research project, and I just recently had to close my general peds practice for lack of staff. So I'm going through um, that grieving process right now, and I'm really finding that I so miss getting to play with babies every day and see cute toddlers and, you know, hear about elementary school kids playing soccer and all those wonderful things. But I'm trying to tell tell myself that maybe there are other ways that I can help the population uh, beyond my practice. Well, training the next wave of doctors to be able to to replicate and to to leverage the approach of meeting kids where they are and really doing what's right for the child instead of what's standard protocol is a powerful way 
to to have a, a true a huge impact. So again, we we applaud um, what you've done your whole career, the the profound impact it had on our trajectory. So again, we're very grateful for you and for sharing your knowledge now with our listeners. And we'd love to have you on again. To there's a lot of other topics we would love to dive into, uh, but this one key concept about how truly the gut matters so much more than I know we thought. Um, I think a lot of people are going to really benefit from this deeper understanding of why this matters so much. Well, thank you, Lynn. It's a pleasure to talk to you too. And um, I'm happy to come back again in the future because I I would like a way to uh, reach all those patients there that don't live, you know, close to Lynchburg. Great. Well, thanks again for being on. Oh, listen, it was a pleasure. Want to discover your top autism parenting blind spot? Take our free quiz today. Go to allinparent.com slash go.